Welcome to Poems for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon. What do you know about the life of either of your parents before you were born? Were they storytellers? If so, maybe they shared with you some sense of how they lived before they raised you. If your parents have died, have others told stories about them from before you were born? Or were you inquisitive and asked thoughtful questions about their experiences before you arrived? If so, your parents might have opened up to you. Even if they did, it's likely you carry with you just a few incomplete narratives about their experience. The title of today's episode, Imagining Our Parents Before We Were Born. The three contemporary poems I will read today suggest that these poets create their work out of the bits and pieces they were told. Then they speculate or fabricate the rest to achieve some coherent understanding of who their parents were before they became parents. These poets have a few facts and a larger quantity of fiction or myths to work with. I want to get to the first poem for today, Philip Levine's The Mercy, published in 1998. If we presume the poem is autobiographical, Levine sees his mother at nine years old, a solitary, brave, immigrant girl traveling across the ocean. She's surrounded by people whose language means nothing to her. This is Philip Levine's poem, The Mercy. The ship that took my mother to Ellis Island 83 years ago was named The Mercy. She remembers trying to eat a banana without first peeling it and seeing her first orange in the hands of a young Scot a seaman who gave her a bite and wiped her mouth for her with a red bandana and taught her the word orange, saying it patiently over and over. A long autumn voyage, the days darkening, with the black waters calming as night came on. Then nothing as far as her eyes could see and space without limit rushing off to the corners of creation. She prayed in Russian and Yiddish to find her family in New York. Prayers unheard or misunderstood or perhaps ignored by all the powers that swept the waves of darkness before she woke, that kept the mercy afloat while smallpox raged among the passengers and crew until the dead were buried at sea with strange prayers in a tongue she could not fathom. The mercy I read on the yellowing pages of a book I located in a windowless room of the library on 42nd Street sat 31 days offshore in quarantine before the passengers disembarked. 
there a story ends. Other ships arrived. Tancred out of Glasgow. The Neptune, registered as Danish. Umberto IV. The list goes on for pages. November gives way to winter. The sea pounds this alien shore. Italian miners from Piemont dig under towns in western Pennsylvania only to rediscover the same nightmare they left at home. A nine-year-old girl travels all night by train with one suitcase and an orange. She learns that mercy is something you can eat again and again while the juice spills over your chin. You can wipe it away with the back of your hands and you can never get enough. That's Philip Levine's poem, The Mercy. His mother, at nine years old, had never eaten a banana, did not know it needed to be peeled, had never seen an orange until a Scottish seaman gave her a bite and wiped her mouth. This apparent fact gets converted into a metaphor at the poem's end. She learns that mercy is something you can eat again and again while the juice spills over your chin. You can wipe it away with the back of your hands and you can never get enough. That sounds sentimental. But what does it mean to say that his mother as a girl could not get enough of mercy? Levine implies his mother was smart enough as a young girl to realize how fortunate she was that she could make her way across the dark sea, that she could avoid the smallpox that killed other passengers and crew members on the ship, and that she could arrive in New York where she would launch her new life. Also, those who assisted this nine-year-old girl like the Scottish seamen, would be remembered with affection. One seven-and-a-half-line sentence about her prayers on board ship makes us wonder how effective she thought these prayers were. She prayed in Russian and Yiddish to find her family in New York, prayers unheard or misunderstood, or perhaps ignored by all the powers that swept the waves of darkness before she woke, that kept the mercy afloat while smallpox raged among the passengers and crew until the dead were buried at sea with strange prayers in a tongue she could not fathom. Levine himself, as I presume he's the speaker, did some research. He found a library book that in indicated the Mercy sat 31 days offshore in quarantine before the passengers disembarked. We're left to imagine how frightened this nine-year-old girl who spoke only Russian and Yiddish must have been when others around her were dying and buried at sea 
and then she waits for an additional month before she's allowed to disembark. The poem does not tell us whether she found the family members she sought. Levine does not want to focus on such particulars. Instead, he subtly highlights his mother's quiet courage as a nine-year-old, treated with mercy by others, traveling on board a ship named the Mercy. The Mercy describes the immigration experience of the poet's mother in 1913, just before the First World War erupted. Levine said he inherited myths and maybe even a few facts about his parents. That circumstance may be true for you, too. In an interview, Levine noted that his father came alone to the States from Russia at age 11. He died young, age 35, while Levine's mother lived to be 94. The Mercy is the title poem in a volume Philip Levine dedicated to my mother, Esther Levine, 1904-1998. Our next poem, the Irish author Yvonne Boland's The Black Lace Fan My Mother Gave Me, is set in pre-war Paris, that is, the mid-1930s. Boland's poem relies on many short sentences, some just a half-line long. She conjures up a Paris rendezvous between her parents from a time before they were her parents, before they even knew they would marry. This is Yvonne Boland's poem, The Black Lace Fan My Mother Gave Me. It was the first gift he ever gave her, buying it for five francs in the galleries in pre-war Paris. It was stifling. A starless draught made the nights stormy. They stayed in the city for the summer. They met in cafes. She was always early. He was late. That evening he was later. They wrapped the fan. He looked at his watch. She looked down the Boulevard des Capuchines. She ordered more coffee. She stood up. The streets were emptying. The heat was killing. She thought the distance smelled of rain and lightning. These are wild roses, appliqued on silk by hand, darkly picked, stitched boldly, quickly. The rest is tortoiseshell and has the reticent, clear patience of its element. It is a worn-out underwater bullion, and it keeps, even now, an inference of its violation. The lace is overcast, as if the weather it opened for and offset had entered it. The past is an empty cafe terrace, an airless dusk before thunder, 
a man running. And no way now to know what happened then. None at all. Unless, of course, you improvise. The blackbird on this first sultry morning in summer, finding buds, worms, fruit, feels the heat. Suddenly, she puts out her wing, the whole, full, flirtatious span of it. That's Yvonne Bolin's poem, The Black Lace Fan My Mother Gave Me. Bolin's short sentences are staccato-like bursts that define the couple's attempt at a rendezvous. The four-line second stanza is constructed with seven sentences. They stayed in the city for the summer. They met in cafes. She was always early. He was late. That evening, he was later. They wrapped the fan. He looked at his watch. There are snippets of personal history. Her father's habitual tardiness, her mother's impatience and inclination to leave before the father arrives. But then Boland's speaker says of her mother, waiting alone, she thought the distance smelled of rain and lightning. And with that line, we move away from strictly fact. Boland's speaker imagines an interior view of the mother. Boland admits she has to improvise what happened between her would-be parents. The father, well, I'm presuming this is the speaker's father, is late on this day because he's purchasing the black lace fan. It's a real object that the speaker says has been handed down to her. In her projection, it seems to retain the weather from that Paris summer. The lace is overcast as if the weather it opened for and offset had entered it. I like to presume it's a gift that sealed the deal between the speaker's parents. Perhaps the mother, who was about to leave the cafe, forgives the man's tardiness because of the originality of the gift. And the poem details the black lace fan's design, as well as its, its practicality. The heat was killing on that day in Paris. Well, let's hear this poem once more. Yvonne Boland's poem, The Black Lace Fan My Mother Gave Me. It was the first gift he ever gave her, buying it for five francs in the galleries in pre-war Paris. It was stifling, a starless draught made the nights stormy. They stayed in the city for the summer. They met in cafes. She was always early. He was late. That evening he was later. They wrapped the fan. He looked at his watch. She looked down the Boulevard des Capuchines. She ordered more coffee. She stood up. The streets were emptying. The heat was killing. 
She thought the distance smelled of rain and lightning. These are wild roses, appliqued on silk by hand, darkly picked, stitched boldly, quickly. The rest is tortoise shell and has the reticent, clear patience of its element. It is a worn-out underwater bullion, and it keeps, even now, an inference of its violation. The lace is overcast, as if the weather it opened for and offset had entered it. The past is an empty cafe terrace, an airless dusk before thunder, a man running, and no way now to know what happened then, none at all, unless, of course, you improvise. The blackbird on this first sultry morning in summer, finding buds, worms, fruit, feels the heat. Suddenly, she puts out her wing, the whole, full, flirtatious span of it. Once again, Ivan Boland's The Black Lace Fan My Mother Gave Me. If the man had arrived at the cafe two minutes after the woman left, would these two adults in pre-war Paris have ever seen one another again? But she did wait long enough for his arrival. If the man arrived late yet again and without a gift, would the speaker's mother have continued the relationship? But he did show up with this gift, and the rest is personal history coated in a thick gloss of myth or improvisation. I like to imagine the poem presents the random acts required for the speaker to even be born. Yvonne Bowen does not insert herself directly into her poem. Sharon Olds in I Go Back to May 1937 does insert herself in her poem. Sharon Olds was born in 1942 and so depicts her parents just five years pre-birth when they are about to cross the threshold from college to marriage to child-rearing. Her poem is punctuated in such a way that it invites a faster reading than most poetry. Here is Sharon Olds' I Go Back to May 1937. I see them standing at the formal gates of their colleges, I see my father strolling out under the ochre sandstone arch, the red tiles glinting like bent plates of blood behind his head. I see my mother, with a few light books at her hip, standing at the pillar made of tiny bricks, the wrought iron gate still open behind her, its sword tips aglow in the May air. They are about to graduate. They are about to get married. They are kids. They are dumb. 
all they know is they are innocent. They would never hurt anybody. I want to go up to them and say, Stop! Don't do it! She's the wrong woman. He's the wrong man. You are going to do things you cannot imagine you would ever do. You are going to do bad things to children. You are going to suffer in ways you have not heard of. You are going to want to die. I want to go up to them, there, in the late May sunlight, and say it, her hungry, pretty face turning to me, her pitiful, beautiful, untouched body, his arrogant, handsome face turning to me, his pitiful, beautiful, untouched body. But I don't do it. I want to live. I take them up like the male and female paper dolls and bang them together at the hips like chips of flint as if to strike sparks from them. I say, do what you are going to do and I will tell about it. That's Sharon Olds. I go back to May 1937. This 30-line poem is punctuated as though it's five sentences, but four of the five link together multiple sentence units with commas, creating a vertical plunge in the poem. We drop down through the poem rapidly. The speaker almost breathlessly reimagines her parents before they married. She ponders, should I warn them? The only one of the five that is a legitimate grammatical sentence is a mere four monosyllables. I want to live. So even if she could go back in time, warn her parents, disrupt their marriage plans, she would not for the simple, straightforward reason. I want to live. She imagines that pre-marriage her parents were innocent and their bodies pitiful, beautiful, untouched. Philip Levine and Yvonne Bolin seemed to share private family stories that they enhanced, fleshed out. Olds, instead, seems to construct her poem out of thin personal information. Her parents, in May 1937, were about to graduate and about to marry. Like Levine and Bolin, though, Olds shapes this minimal information in an effort to locate meaning in her parents' past. All three poets implicitly urge all of us to reflect on who our parents were before we were born. Let's hear Old's five-sentence poem once more. I go back to May 1937. I see them standing at the formal gates of their colleges. I see my father strolling out under the ochre sandstone arch, the red tiles glinting like bent plates of blood behind his head. 
I see my mother with a few light books at her hip standing at the pillar made of tiny bricks, the wrought-iron gates still open behind her, its sword tips aglow in the May air. They are about to graduate. They are about to get married. They are kids. They are dumb. All they know is they are innocent. They would never hurt anybody. I want to go up to them and say, Stop! Don't do it! She's the wrong woman. He's the wrong man. You are going to do things you cannot imagine you would ever do. You are going to do bad things to children. You are going to suffer in ways you have not heard of. You are going to want to die. I want to go up to them there in the late May sunlight and say it, her hungry, pretty face turning to me, her pitiful, beautiful, untouched body, his arrogant, handsome face turning to me, his pitiful, beautiful, untouched body. But I don't do it. I want to live. I take them up like the male and female paper dolls and bang them together at the hips like chips of flint as if to strike sparks from them. I say, do what you are going to do and I will tell about it. In an interview, Sharon Old said, When I was a child, there was no idea that children should tell anyone what their troubles were. Zero. If there were troubling things in a family, the most important thing was that no one would find out. Well, that childhood code of silence was tossed overboard with her very first volume of poetry titled, Satan Says. As the final line to the poem I just read promises, do what you are going to do and I will tell about it. She has written many poems about her parents, her father especially, including a volume titled The Father. He is depicted as aloof and brutal as well as vulnerable, and her response to him veers from scathing anger to tenderness. Her poetic response to her mother covers a lot of emotional territory, too. I want to note that on a previous episode of Poems for Company, I read Sharon Old's poem, Her Creed, in which the speaker visits her elderly mother, and they imagine a kind of afterlife they'd be willing to enter together. And on that same previous episode, I read Philip Levine's poem, Soloing. In that poem, the one-time nine-year-old immigrant is now an elderly blind woman living alone and powerfully moved when she recounts a dream in which John Coltrane played for her, soloing. Those two poems by Olds and Levine are on the December 26th 2022 episode of Poems for Company. To find it, go to kmun.org and click on the podcast link. Perhaps the thoughts Levine, Yvonne Boland, and Olds offer prompt you to think about the lives of your own parents before you were born. All three of today's poems 
are listed at kmun.org. Click on the podcast link and then click on Poems for Company. Our theme music is Philip Auberg's Going to the Sun from his CD Live from Montana, available at sweetgrassmusic.com. Thanks for listening today.